Uh, Sorry, for... I don't know that. Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> it's called repeat after me. Wanna try it? Welcome to this week's Twin Geek Cast. This is Calvin. And David here. The joke's on us as Todd Phillips' Joker makes waves in Venice. In new releases, we hit the horror trifecta with In Fabric, Tigers Are Not Afraid, and It Chapter 2. For our feature presentation, we'll be looking at the 70th anniversary of Carol Reed's The Third Man, the classic film noir set in post-war Vienna, starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. Did you guys get the lightning storms we got up north? Uh, I didn't notice any lightning, but I mentioned to you we had like a, a small tornado like <laughs> right near us. You said it's about 15 miles per hour, which made me think you could go play in it. You could go put your cat in it and watch it spurl around. Yeah, not like a real tornado, like not, not what I imagine as a tornado, but it's like the second one I've seen this year in the Portland area, like announcement for it. Like my phone even went off in Amber Alert. It's like tornado <laughs> alert. And, and that's way more alarming sounding than it is. But it was seriously, it's like in the neighborhood that I live in, not just in Portland. It was like a weather funnel, would you say? <laughs> I guess that's what you would call it more so. I don't yeah. even know how, how like large it was size-wise. Like All I remember reading about was the the, the wind speeds. I'm like, 15 actually isn't that bad at all. <laughs> and I know we had about 200 strikes of lightning, which was really fun to sit out and watch. Ezra got her first lightning storm, so that that's was cool. neat. And yeah, we had about 1,000 strikes over the course of the night, which was amazing for out here. That's, that's pretty crazy. I love watching thunderstorms and stuff whatnot. I, I'm just so excited to have this all back, the rain and everything. Again, I, I, I think I mentioned as well, I'm going on a fishing trip this weekend, so I hope it goes away for... Oh, that, shit. I hope that, so for you. That brief amount of time. Just go away for, for Friday and Saturday and maybe Sunday as well, and then that'll be good. And then you can go back up just torrential downpour. And I'll be satisfied. <laughs> For the rest of the Twin Geeks forecast, on Wednesday we'll have highs <laughs> of 72, a chance of rain. And uh, Thursday, it looks like we'll still have some clouds, and Friday we'll see some spots of rain. So uh, that's uh, that's for our weather. Uh, how's it going down in Vancouver? I don't know. I should look up the weather, shouldn't I? But I'll be up, I'll be up north, actually, for uh, coming up on Friday. And I, th- I think I've mentioned this. I'm, I might miss next week, so maybe there's another Brogue okay. podcast in the future. But I'm, I might be able to chime in from uh, uh, from on location. <laughs> if we if we do, we're going to rank not only Michael Bay, but also Kevin Smith. So stay tuned for Bro and I making some <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> Until then, I have the traffic report for the downtown Seattle-Tacoma area. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, it- what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were a podcast, not a radio show. <laughs> oh, right. Um, so, news from uh, Venice this week is that Joker's going to be a huge hit. It's going to win all the awards. Prepare for Oscar season. Uh, uh, yay? Yay, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about this. Uh, did we talk about Joker before on the podcast? I feel like we mentioned before. I don't know. I've... It's just such a big topic in the the zeitgeist right now. I feel like I've talked about it a lot already, but I guess I'm going to say it again. This seems like a a dangerously appealing film for a large mm-hmm. portion of the, the movie-going audience. <laughs> it's really... Um, uh, do you identify as an incel by chance? Uh, uh, I'm going to go on the record and say no definitely no, me not. neither um well because you have a fiance and i'm married i don't think we could qualify as joker's target demo but i'm really it's, excited because have you seen all the frustration online this week it's it's really fantastic yes that's some of the funny stuff uh you know i, I do enjoy perusing some of the uh the reactions to this uh both both the bad and the embracing of it like i'm i'm enjoying watching both ends of the spectrum you know the people who are <laughs> lashing out against the film and trashing it already even though it's not out yeah. uh, specifically because they know it appeals to this kind of uh homebody you know kind of uh toxically you know masculine kind of character here mm-hmm. but also on the same end of those kind of people embracing the film and it, yeah <laughs> I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once it makes those people mad, that's what those people are going to embrace. It, it the is, more mad it's... they get, you know, the more they're going to embrace this. 
Well, and Joker is the perfect character to to be that for there. I mean, because he's already been that for them for a long period of time. You know, basically mm-hmm. since the Dark Knight, we've had more than ten years of identifying with this character, and now we have a whole movie about him that's appealing to that specifically. And I, I don't think that's intentionally by the filmmakers. I, I do want to say that at least mm-hmm. out loud here. <laughs> it's it's just going to be some unfortunate thing that was probably going to happen no matter how you made the film because yeah. just because of not only the the people who rally around that but the DC fan base especially in general attracts a lot of those people they want to be against the grain and quote unquote rebellious boss by by still being in the mainstream so they lash against Marvel by attaching to DC I think and they they try and connect more with the darker and edgier characters they go for there I think the dark the I think the dark edge of a DC film kind of makes it proto punk, right? So I think it already has that wavelength where punk is obviously like conservative now cuz our culture is more liberal. Um so I feel like they are attaching to something like that and uh there's not a lot of films for them like that anymore. Uh so when you get something that's channeling their Travis Bickle instincts, their taxi driver, of course they're going to go for it cuz they've already championed that for years. I am yeah, I'm kind of that was something I was thinking about as well, because the film is very taxi driver, kind of uh, king of comedy-ish, you know, very Scorsese influence in that vibe there, it seems, from the takes I've been reading. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm actually kind of curious as to um, what these kind of people who, who rally around the film think of something like Taxi Driver, which is <laughs> damning of... of Bickle's character. And but again, it's it's in a way I, that I think identifies we, with them still. I think we... I think we don't know if this film's damning of the Joker. I think it may end up being that, too. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the big thing that we have to kind of wonder here, is that what's the take going to be? Not that it matters if you do damn your character in a film, because audiences will interpret whatever they want, and they will discard any damning evidence there, as you see in the celebration of characters like uh, Travis Bickle and, and whatnot there. Um and I think that's what we're looking at, is that you get to make films with ugly characters, and we've had a little bit of trouble with that this week. There's just, there's no contextual reading on the internet, so when you have um, Jojo Rabbit with a Hitler character, it's just like he's just misunderstood. Obviously, it's a satire of hate, so um, you got to do something different with that, but I think the internet doesn't read into context and uh, those social cues in movies. Well, and, and yeah, that's the thing as well, is that... Uh... You know, satirizing Nazism is not a new concept by any means, but it's a very, I think, chic concept, and I hope uh, we kind of pave the way for a little bit more of that, and we can poke more fun at Nazis, because that seems to be something we're not doing enough of lately. But I did read some of the disparaging reviews for Jojo Rabbit, and mm-hmm. uh, it was disappointing to see. I'm like, oh, okay, so this reviewer just doesn't understand what sarcasm is. Like, they were complaining yeah. about not taking things seriously, like the, the subject seriously, and just making lots right. of jokes. I'm like, that's that's what satire is here, and it is still framing it seriously. Do you not know? Oh, man, I hope this guy doesn't find out about Mel Brooks. He's going to have a corner. They really, <laughs> they really want uh, Schindler's Rabbit, which is a whole different film. Yeah, and that's, uh, honestly, I think that's not as powerful stuff, and you risk being more disrespectful if you take the serious route there, because you have to be so pinpoint accurate, and you got to really walk a careful line there when you're doing that, and something like Schindler's List certainly does, but, uh, you know, it's not as successful as I, I think, you know, a lot of... Uh, satirical stuff is which which tends to be more powerful in shutting down nazism because you can see how the uh they they can't really reverse the imagery and you see that in a lot of cases i think one of the perfect examples is that uh a film like american history x which is a a great film you know a great anti-nazi film and anti-racist film is often used by nazis as you know propagandist imagery because it's (laughs) it's covered in that they're just they're just as likely they're just as likely to play the white man marches on to their march as they are to actually understand what the film means. Right. Well, they just and they take the parts they like and they ignore all the other things. And so you've got you've got, and because they also present the ideologies there in a very stark and you know observing form, they're free to see that as validation. Like there's the dinner sequence in American History X where the dad makes all his complaints about you know, uh, you know all of the the Mexicans or, you know, the, the black people coming in and taking jobs in the fire department. And they, without the context of the situation, they kind of just, in, 
take that as validation for their own viewpoints, their own ways of doing that. And you can't have that in a satirical sense, in a in a Mel Brooks style, you know, producers play where you just see this ridiculous uh, display of um, theatricality with the springtime for Hitler number, like that, that's not used for any Nazi propaganda. <laughs> I doubt the director would take the risk of playing Hitler if it were a very serious role. Yeah, was especially, like, I don't think that's the kind of thing with, with Taika as well. There's there's few times where I've seen that done successfully. There, there's a reason why you don't see Hitler portrayed very often if you do, and it's in very short glances. I think the only, like, truly successful time I've seen that is Bruno Ganz as, in, uh, as Hitler in uh, Downfall, hmm. back, which who recently again passed this year. It was very sad. Yeah. Um so I've I'm looking forward to Joker though. Where are you with Batman? Are you are you tired of DC? Are you happy with the new direction? You know, I've I stopped. I dropped it as soon as I walked out of the theater of Suicide Squad and realized I made the worst decision of my life going uh, to see it. <laughs> I didn't Think, even go. I I I caught it on video. It was you, no good. You know, I was pressured by a bunch of friends, you know, it was a kind of group thing like everyone wanted to go check out whatever it was. It was is a bad experience, and I subsequently dropped all of those people from my life because of that. I still think about how Margot Robbie got everyone to get Suicide Squad tattoos after uh, they all performed their 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 role in the movie. Yeah, that's such a uh, bizarre thing. How you kind of look back, but you know what? I, I I guess it's important. It won an Oscar after all, right? Well, I mean, Will Smith refused to get one. Um, look where he's going. He's in Gemini Man. Nobody cares about that. He's not related to the Joker, which people care about. Yeah, an actual award-winning movie. But what's someone like Jai Courtney doing? Like, <laughs> I'm sure that tattoo is um, working out well for him. Right. <laughs> uh, I think the the other splashes were that Polanski won an award and Nate Parker did. They're both the they're both alleged rapists, so that's an interesting thing. Controversial figures, certainly, and you know it. Uh, the whole Polanski thing started up a whole storm on Twitter again, and uh, well, because Polanski was just shut out of the Academy last year, so it's a very controversial time to give his new film. What is it? The something in the spy an award? Yeah, something like that. And I don't know. It's it's an it's an odd thing I think to still focus on because I feel uh, it's such an old old thing. We're coming upon like it's like been more than forty years since the incident and i'm not here to defend anything in fact you might want to cut all this from the podcast calvin to remain less controversial but uh i just think polanski in general isn't relevant uh what was what was the pianist was his last really big film that was yeah it's been a while since that yeah like even even i think that i think the i think the charges are old but the social pressures of it are last five years so that's why he still gets the lashback well, it's it's the revival of it because of the the kind of Me Too movement. Woody Allen's in the same boat as him, where things died down from the uh, um, accusations, you know, and uh, <laughs> such there. But now they've revived again with the whole movement here, and they these two people have become big figureheads for pointing blame again. And uh, it's I th- I think it's odd that it's like solely these people, and we don't keep focus on more relevant people in the discussion mm. right now like these these guys are very out of the game i would say they're still making movies but they're not important influential figures like others are they're in the twilight years of their careers dwindling down to maybe stopping soon so yeah i've got a feeling they they're both pretty done here soon uh but I mean, except the, the, for polanski winning an award and being received like a hero in venice so that's interesting yeah. Yeah, I guess it's important to say, like, we're, we're downplaying it, but I think it's mostly just because we don't know anything about this film. Here it is, An Officer and a Spy. I pulled That's it, it up here. But his films don't have, haven't had good ratings in some time, it looks. Or, I mean, there's some, but I don't see anything about them. Is it is that a linked thing? Like, is the, the fact that I don't hear about them a product of the fact that we've effectively canceled him? I don't know. I don't know if it's the same, but uh, not canceled in Venice, and... Uh... How about these new releases? Should we cancel some movies? Oh, yeah, we got some new releases. I don't know. Are there any movies left to cancel? I thought we had, like, two new movies this week. There's at least one to cancel, but uh, let's start with a good one. <laughs> in Fabric takes place in um, mostly within, like, the uh, 
a department store's winter season where they're selling all these clothes that uh, kind of latch on in like in a Suspiria way. They haunt the person as like this weird cult dances and conjures spells around them. It's a really cool Peter Strickland movie. I don't know anything about this one. You're going to have to kind of catch me up on everything that's going on. This is okay. probably the reason why I don't know about Polanski instead, is I just don't know about movies. <laughs> um, and then he's done uh, Barbarian Sound Studio, which you might know is a very haunting, cutting, um, kind of grindy horror movie. Nope. No, I don't know that one either. Okay. Um, so Peter Strickland's very like cutting edge right now. He's also done Duke of Burgundy, and this one's more Giallo style. So we've had a bit of resurgence after Suspiria. This one you couldn't tell that it's not made in the seventies. Uh, I really love the aesthetic of it. Uh, very fun gala. Yeah, I'm I'm looking over the pictures here, and it does remind me a lot of uh, Giallo stuff I've I've seen there. It's got that look going on. I think it's interesting that the idea that something like Suspiria from last year would revive it because it was notably different from its you know its source. Suspiria, the the remake here was just entirely kind of grounded and unstylized from the very flashy uh, uh, Argento film. Yeah, perhaps like its director's Italian lineage kind of brought us back to looking at some of these old Italian horrors and maybe reintroduce some of the concepts because uh, I feel like we're getting back to some really interesting, more uh, edgy horror again. Our horror revival came and now we're getting like the late stage of that like we did in the 70s. Yeah, I hope we get some some of this more interesting kind of expressive visual horror. Um, you know, as we'll see with some of the other horror we got here, um, we need more of that Uh commercial horror is is not satisfying enough i think and i think people are responding more to the uh more artistic horror movement that's starting up here we also had uh isa lopez's uh the tigers are not afraid which is a mexican film a mexican dark fantasy i i really like the dark realism something like under the shadows where it's a you know just a mom and a boy fighting against the very real horror of war manifested as um as a spiritual demon so this is like the uh the the forces of poverty against children manifested as demons which is really interesting i haven't heard much about this one uh unsurprisingly you know again because no. it's a, a foreign movie here but i i did actually slightly brush a past it is it playing it's it's playing in one theater uh, in mm -hmm. my area here, which happens to be the theater I frequent for all my old movie showings that I go to instead of new movies. And I, so I saw it on the marquee, and I was like, oh, I remember Calvin mentioning that recently. I'm surprised to see it's here. Oh, that's yeah, nice. I and suppose I if, you're, if you're in our area, it's it's showing at uh, Issaquah's International Film Festival, which is a just an extension of SIF this weekend. So there's there's places to check it out. Yeah, uh, it's... I think there's usually, if you've got a nice metropolitan area, you know, you can get to most every movie that's around. There's at least one place to see it. You just got to find it. And so, you know, if, if you're really interested in them, you know, they're there. It's just, it takes a little effort to find them, that's all. And no matter where you live, you could go see It Chapter 2 if you really want to wait three hours for a movie. Yeah, so that that was the thing. When I saw that that's what the runtime was from, I about jumped out of my seat. Like, that was scarier <laughs> than anything the film, you know, could propose there. That's a ridiculous amount of length for a a part two of this. The, the TV miniseries from 1990 is three hours as a whole. Yeah. I mean, that makes it about six hours as a total story. Yeah, I, th I think the first part is probably... I think it's less than two hours. I might be surprised. I'm going to shock myself here. Yeah, it's two hours and 15 minutes, which is also extraneously long for a very commercial kind of horror film. Why are these blockbuster films getting so long? I don't know. The only three-hour movie I have time for is Scorsese's new movie. So I don't, I don't know what's going on with it. I know that the opening is being accused of a lot of gay bashing, which is interesting. Is it? I don't... Yeah. Well, apparently, the same as in the book, he comes and the it, like we're talking about with the last two films, is like a manifestation of, of course, what happens that goes wrong in this town in, uh, what is it, Maine? Maine so, and Derry, yeah. In Derry. So, um, 
it's it's about like the violence towards gays and i guess he eats a gay person in the first five minutes and then the film doesn't do anything else with that so uh, uh everyone's posting semi-sarcastically that the clown used to be an ally now he's an enemy that's where we are when was the clown an ally is that is that some kind of meta statement um, i don't understand that I think it's interesting in these new movies because the clown's entertaining the kids, whereas the kids used to be like a ploy for the clown to derive his own entertainment. It's very strange to me how that changed between the miniseries and this. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I found it interesting because that was the biggest thing I found from part one because I did see that back two years ago, and I probably won't go see this one, but um, uh. I found the clown was the the least interesting part going on because it is that's more that the jump scary stuff and they they sucked all the character out of Pennywise specifically even though he's like the marketing for the whole film he's the selling point the yeah Pennywise is the scary clown to end all scary clowns and he's just not scary which is not right and I don't know especially compared to the 1990 version which I have a, a guilty pleasure for because it's not good, I'll say, but Tim Curry is really great in it, and it's worth it for that, I think. I think it's badly plotted and paced, and then it's episodic, like more of a TV show, but then I think Tim Curry really saves that, whereas Skarsgård doesn't really entertain me in this. Yeah, uh, and I think a, I think a lot needs to be said on probably both ends as to why the, both are weak, is that the, the material in general is just kind of very bloated and not mm. totally thought out. It's it's a gigantic book. It's, yeah, it's a doorstopper of a book. It's huge, and it probably doesn't need to be. No, and you don't need to convert a doorstopper into a, a film. We're seeing also this week the reactions to The Goldfinch, which is just a too large book, and we don't really need these huge uh, winding epics of books that are, you know, just they fit the literary form, but they're not going to ever translate into a movie. Yeah, I mean, at least not without significant paring down. Or, I mean, there's also the avenue of uh, miniseries, which is kind of what, you know, the the original TV version of it was going for. But it was only, you know, it was cut down to two parts instead of however many was actually mm. necessary to tell the sprawling story. And we have that medium more, so it's a lot more of an accessible idea with Netflix and whatnot. You know, we, we can do that now as an option, but we're not doing it for some reason. And not so surprising to me, because I don't think, what's his name, Andy Muschietti is that interesting of a filmmaker. Like, he's just made Mama and It. He doesn't really have any other features to his name that, uh, I just don't think he's that great. So, it doesn't surprise me that it feels longer than three hours, because uh, nothing happens that much in the movie. Well, he's a, he's a studio director here, is what the sense is here. He's a, he's a stooge, effectively, that the, mm. you know, the studio can dictate we need this exact thing to make the blockbuster work it's you know there, there's no authorial voice with it no it's not like really directing a film it's being told how to direct it uh, you're going like amblin light and then you have to cast these people and that's the film mm-hmm. i know that the duffer brothers who you know made stranger things they originally wanted to do the adaptation of it but weren't given the chance and i got a feeling it might well be... it shows yeah <laughs> Uh, I mean, obviously, and they, they just went and made it effectively, but, you know, more original. Slightly more original. It's still pretty derivative, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it still has the Losers Club aspect. Uh, I'm excited by some of the casting in this. I thought Jessica Chastain is good. Uh, James McAvoy, Bill Hader. Bill um, Hader, especially. Bill Hader is, like, the, the hot ticket boy right now. You know, he's huge. The hot the hot boy in yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> Now he's he's huge, and I hear heard that they kind of make his because he plays Richie. I think he plays the older yeah. Richie, the comedic character. And they kind of made him the lead as opposed to Bill, which is James McAvoy's or... character. Yeah. Which which just shows how much more kind of commanding of a, a presence and uh, you know talent that uh, Bill Hader is versus James McAvoy. McAvoy's been sliding yeah. as of late. You know he's he's not doing as well as he was uh, earlier, I think, in his career. Maybe even just a couple years back. Yeah, I mean, Split seemed like he was onto something, but then, of course, we have Glass, and it's it's a mess. Well, um, yeah, I'd say ever since he kind of hit the X-Men franchise there, he's kind of slid more into this commercial work, you know, superhero blockbustery stuff, and he's not been doing that much. Look, his last three films here, he's done It, Dark Phoenix, and Glass. <laughs> 
Oh, bombings, bombing on sequels this year. Yeah. So, no. Uh, so, not so I, <laughs> I, I think I'll see it eventually. I, I just need to find time for it. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to see it anytime, but maybe I'll see it in a couple years when it's on Netflix or something, and I'll be like, oh, I've got <laughs> three hours to waste. How did this end up being? So the director, Andy Meshikati, what do you call him? That he said that he's going to try to combine them into one single film, so that might be the thing to wait for. Yeah, uh, I think that's an interesting idea that I guess that Tarantino-y route of mm-hmm. you know bringing your movies that were originally different you know, parts together, or then, you know, conversely, taking your movie that was one part and splitting it across multiples mm. so that you can get the Netflix money. I think it would work, but uh, I, I guess if two is already too long, what does adding two hours to it do? Yeah, it's going to, I mean, more than two hours, but yeah, uh, it's just going to be way, way too long. There's a way to do it. You got to sift through the Stephen King madness there. That <laughs> is the book to, to find the good stuff that's in there and in mine i heard they even didn't even do like the full ending like with all the turtle the space turtle mm. stuff yeah i think that's a lot of that's left out and that's just book stuff now um that's too bad because that's some of the weirdest parts well that's kind of what i was hoping for because you don't get that in the tv version and there are hints yeah. of that in in this new one in the you know the, the 2017 hint. there's hints of the idea of the turtle god thing that the book has going on in in the end but they don't apparently fulfill that and i'm disappointed Man. because that would make it like different enough like that that would make it i kind of think worth visiting over the television series because it has a new aspect to it is it so hard to film a space turtle come the fuck on man <laughs> it is it is such a bizarre thing when when you look at what it it is essentially from a marketing aspect you're like ah it's like the definitive scary clown movie and you're, and by the end you're like space demon clown versus <laughs> giant turtle god and it power gets weird. friendship through inherently sexual relation i don't know it's a weird weird thing i don't know what's going on in that book <laughs> yeah orgies and um uh space turtles uh, so we've already done our basically stephen king we went through on our misery show but uh i think misery is both of our favorite adaptation I, I think absolutely. Uh, it's certainly mine. It's my favorite horror film ever, as I said on our very early Misery podcast, and that hasn't changed. Um, I think I like Misery so much because it has his aspects of writing on writing, which always interests me about King. It's so meta-contextual about the writer's process and how he has to write for himself or the audience. Yeah, uh, well, it's all about being a writer. It feels like a much more personal story than most of his, uh, you know, just kind of pulpy films or, or books rather mm-hmm. that he makes you know it's it's got something more truthful to it than say Cujo oh and before we forget we have one other new release we have the fanatic with John Travolta oh yeah you got your review up on the site for that which was highly entertaining to read <laughs> I almost left him off but uh, Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit, Mr. Biscuit directed his own film <laughs> and, and what did you think of it uh, I gave it a 1 out of 10, which is the lowest we could possibly go. I, I, oh man, it's such a weird film because it's, it feels like, remember Simple Jack? Uh, yeah, that, that's the, uh, the, the kind of made up Oscar Beatty, uh, film about a Down Syndrome person from Tropic Thunder that Ben Stiller's character stars in. <laughs> yeah, it's just that movie, but it's John Travolta playing that role and he's doing it really dumbly. Um, it, it doesn't respect its audience or its characters, so I don't feel like we need to respect it either. <laughs> I always remember the funny things about this, like the, you know, go to sleep to watch the, the movies in my head. He <laughs> makes the joke about that or something, I don't know. <laughs> There's nothing really funny about this. I, I laughed at it a few times. John Travolta shows up, the first line in the movie is, hold on, I gotta take a poo. Oh, well. That's, that's, that's you know rather well. <laughs> I know you know what kind of caliber of script you're dealing with. At one time he looks over. Well, he's he's stalking this star that he really likes of horror movies. At one time he finds the script and he's talking to himself. He's like, "This is not a good script," and he keeps saying it to himself. <laughs> I'm like, "This is <laughs> this is also meta commentary on a movie, isn't it?" I guess so. They must have just captured Travolta in the moment and they just stuck it in the film. Right. Um, 
So I feel pretty good about that. Let's move to our feature film. Yes, a much better script, a much better story. I am excited to talk about this one. We put it off for like a week so we could do something else, but this is still in the general time frame of the 70th anniversary of uh, The Third Man. Cue zithering here. Zither, so much zither. zither. I need to hear zither throughout this entire podcast because <laughs> it it's, it's such a phenomenal choice. And I, I guess uh, we'll just dive into the history of it real quick that, you know, Carol Reed just uh, found the performer um, on the side of the street. Let me pull up his name again. Oh, here. I guess uh, I guess she was like going down like into like a wine cellar with Orson Welles, right? And they saw this guy performing. Um, yeah, let me find his name here. Anyway, it's... Uh, Ant- Ant- Anton Karras, that's his name. And okay. he was... Uh, this basically made him as a person. Like, he was just a, a street performer on a zither, and so Carol Reed wanted to get him to uh, do the-, the theme of the film. But then he mm-hmm. loved it so much that he's like, just score the entire movie with zither. That's all I want. And so it, it became, of course, The Third Man was a huge worldwide sensation, and it made you know so much money and it made Anton Karras' career and he got to basically spend the rest of his life touring being a, a touring zither player and particularly the music from the third man quite a bit it's funny because this is a song that he was already playing like in the clubs for like the last 10 years before he was approached so it was just one that was like in his back pocket he says he like wasn't using it often because uh he liked to be able to eat sausage and play, and it took too much of his hands. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like one that he was like actively performing. Like this uh, best-selling single from this movie is just like a street performer's back pocket song, right? So that's really incredible because it became like a a, a huge like bastard of the single for a movie. Um, it was one of the first singles to be sold separately from a soundtrack. Oh, it's kind of crazy just how much it blew up as well. Like, I remember, like, if you listen to just about any interview with, with Orson Welles when he comes on a TV show or whatever, they play him into the theme of the third man, like, every <laughs> yeah. time. And it's not, and that's a big thing to state up front as well, is that it's, I find it kind of ironic because the third man is not an Orson Welles movie in, like, the, quotes here. <laughs> the theme is really just, like, it's his character's theme. It's the Harry line theme is, is like, yeah. it, it cues him in when it's necessary, right? Right, so it but, makes some sense. Well, it's just that the idea here is that it, it gets so conflated that uh, so much gets conflated. There's so much kind of mixed up history here as to what Orson Welles did in the film. Like there's a rumor that he wrote all of his dialogue, which is just not true. And that's something he even said himself at one point. He said he wrote he got to write all the dialogue for his scenes. And that's just a bullshit. It's a lie. <laughs> um, and, and so much of it is, is conflated here. And so it's important to kind of divorce Orson Welles from the film as, as this kind of overbearing presence because it's not like a star vehicle for Orson Welles by any means. He doesn't show up for a good portion of the film. It's very it's, much Joseph it's, Cotton's movie. It's over an hour, and I think it's because we have like a lot of Joseph Cotton, Cotton relation to Orson because of like Citizen Kane, right? And and Magnificent Ambersons. He starred yeah. in Ambersons because he was a Mercury player. I still need to see a lot of Ambersons, so I, I'm waiting to do that. Yeah, for sure. He's fantastic in that as well. But yeah, this so it does feel like you almost get the sense, uh, again, also conflated ideas is that Orson Welles directed like all of his <laughs> scenes or whatnot as well, which yeah. is also not true. So much of it, this is very much Carol Reed's production of it, you know, and uh, in many interviews as well, unlike for the script stuff, Welles does give Reed credit with all of the direction and everything. It's just more rumor that kind of followed around the film. But and it, very it, interesting because it's a British direction of a noir, which uh, I don't know a lot of the British noirs. I spent a little bit of time on Filmstruck last year looking at a few. Uh, some interesting ones, particularly kind of surrounding Graham Greene, the author of The Third Man here. There was another one I watched uh, that he wrote called Brighton Rock, which stars Richard Attenborough, which is really cool. It's a really kind of, again, another expressionistic one, and it's got a really killer uh, kind of charcoal uh, done poster. One really cool like. thing about this in Green is that he said that he wrote the book so it would become a movie for this, which is kind of a, it's a funny thing to do, and it works so much better that way when the author's all in on making a concept that visually transfers to the screen. Right, he voted it to be very cinematic, and then he did the screenplay as well. And it's a, I think this is just one of the kind of harmonious productions where everything comes together. I think one of the only conflicting interests is uh, David O'Selznick as the American producer on the film, 
who kind of tried to mm-hmm. put his fingers and everything as he did with his stuff and uh you know reed was kind of careful to keep him at bay mm. and it is very interesting in so the thing i've always held it up for is the setting it takes place in war-torn vienna which i've always adored yeah, uh, I mean, I think you love the Italian setting a lot, what with your spaghetti westerns, and, you know, one of your favorite films is kind of in the similar vein here, aesthetic-wise. Don't look now, you love for the same reasons. Well, um, this one's in Austria, <laughs> should we? Well, I mean, it's, uh, this one's in Vienna, yeah. Yeah, uh, so it takes place out there, and it has, like, the four sectors that really attract me to it, because it has, like, the Germany, the British, the American, and the French, which you could feel, like, throughout the film, it has, like, those four prisms of history that come together in an interesting way right it's it's this really interesting very uh short period of time that you had here in this kind of uh divided uh world at the time here going on in vienna specifically and trying to parse through the the wreckage of you know the the post-war world here and Mm -hmm. not only that the film was made like in that time in that space in 1949 you know in the time frame area there so it's um you you could only make i think i said this you you could only make the third man and write it and make it in this time in this place like this you can't make this film outside of that no because it's so bombed out there were like 3,000 bomb holes left in Venice after uh, the 19, you know, around 1945. So a few years after that, you just get the wreckage of it. I love that it's right after because it would lose something being during or any further after this. Uh, Even though my wife says, you know, she was raised in Germany. So she had a, she had a bit of experience in Vienna. So there were still like bombed out cars and shit, but uh, I guess like the under underground path, pathway is like the newest part of the city so i love how it interconnects all of that with it i think that's an interesting idea you could look at that as well that the the underground is the newest thing is the part of the fiena and you can kind of read that as a a symbolic kind of thing yeah it's the only part that looks safe or clean or new it's interesting that that would be the part that would look like that well, it kind of it matches the the underground movement of you know all the kind of black market dealings and everything going on in the city at the time and I wasn't quite ready yet, but I'm so glad you brought up Don't Look Now because it has the same like chase sequence across um, Venice and Vienna. It's a little bit different, but of course it goes into like the drowned out city and then following the red coat is kind of the same uh, framing. And, yeah, uh, let, let's put a pin in that one and we'll bring it up again once we get well, to the chase. Yeah. yeah, coincidentally, that was also like a thing where you just found a street performer and two of my favorite scores, so we could get back to it. Yeah. Uh, but certainly, I think it's the the setting is so much of an important character for the third man, particularly because, uh, you know, the the more thematic and uh, idea of being about the post World War setting is there is that the post World War world uh, really birthed film noir as a style in general. It's you know all of it comes in that uh, early nineteen forties you know cynicism about the war and what's going on. This entire change of a worldwide mentality and this cynical set-in of, you know, worldview here, essentially. And the third man takes that, you know, subtext and makes it physical text, you know, versus, you know, what's going on where we're seeing the literal destruction. And there's so many details kind of spread out throughout the script that reflect how uh, the kind of struggle of the post-World War here, you know, just little lines like uh, Anna's line about, uh, I think there's an introduction of C. She asks Joe Cotton if he wants a drink of the scotch or whatever it is that they have there. And he says no. She's like, oh, okay, I was going to sell that anyway. And so it's just like this quick throwaway line. And I love these details spread throughout it like that, that hint to this uh, this world. I like that a lot of the buildup of the noir elements are naturalistic, too. They're, like, built into the setting and caused by havoc. And uh, they don't even have to be man-made because it shows the chaos and the uh, division and duality without having to design it. Mm-hmm. And, and noir is so much of a uh, coming together of so many different styles and visuals and things again especially of the European influence it's kind of uh, poetic that we're back in Europe portraying film noir because it is the, the Europeans who really kind of birthed it when they came to America and brought their expressionistic ideals and uh, you know formatted them onto our kind of American crime stories yeah, they always say that the noir is the European genre with American actors. But uh, we also had a discussion, I think it's more of a war film than a noir. And and we, we had a discussion about if noir is even a genre. 
Uh, yeah, I've always uh, kind of held the belief that it's you can't really pin it down to a specific style because or a specific, a specific genre because there's no genre conventions for it. There's things that noir films usually are or can be, but they're not 100% consistent. It's not like, say, a Western where it's like, uh, is it set in, you know, turn-of-the-century American West? Ding, 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 it's a Western. Mm. You know, uh, there's nothing like that for noir. It's like, it could take place in a seedy kind of, you know, uh, Los Angeles city, but it doesn't have to be. It can be in war-torn Vienna. It can be in a Mexico border town. It can be wherever, as long as it fits so many of the parameters. I've often said it's not a checklist it's like uh, it's like a graph like you've just gotta hit a certain amount of noir qualifiers and then it's a noir it's not you know specific things which makes me think it's more stylistic than genre anyway it absolutely is i think noir is a style that's always what i've characterized it as i i go i do my best not to call it a genre even though it is often you know universally classified as a genre because it's also just it exists in a short span of time noir exists so that would make it that would make me think that it's a movement and not a genre or a style it totally or maybe movement it's usually marked by uh the first noir is usually considered uh stranger on the third floor which is a 1940 film with peter lorry and then it ends usually people cut it off with Orson Welles' Touch of Evil in Yeah, I think if it were a movement, it would be hard for the British films to also become one. Yeah, and there's there's kind of spread out. There's some elsewhere. You've got, you know, and everyone's definition of noir kind of, kind of differs. You've got some, uh, you know, Japanese noir films that a lot of people consider. Like, there's some Kurosawa films, like Stray Dog, people call noir mm-hmm. films. There's a lot of the, the um, French films, you know, kind of people adapt that. Um, you know, I don't know if it goes all the way into the 60s with something like Breathless, which was certainly influenced by, you know, American film noir. But there are some mm. ahead of time, like uh, Elevator to the Gallows is one that I consider uh, very much a kind of film noir. And it came in the same time span. I believe it was 57. Yeah, Breathless is kind of like recapturing for the Europeans what they had invented already and bringing back auteurism uh, yeah. through noir techniques. So that's, again, um, a very French film with American actors in a European genre. So I guess it does categorize as noir in in style, well, but uh, not really de- in theme or story. It depends on how broad your nef- definition of noir is, because you care. I wrote, you know, we discussed it briefly in our podcast about Glengarry Glen Ross, which inspired me to go on to write a whole article about viewing it as a kind of noir-influenced film, but I would not call Glengarry Glen Ross a, a quote-unquote film noir, because then you also have to consider the kind of neo-noir genre, uh, style that was birthed as well, which kind of came more so in the, the 1970s with the resurgence of those those kind of things and we're talking like chinatown and the long goodbye and farewell my lovely and a lot of those but they did it with a different but inspired edge yeah i think you got to look at it stylistically or you do have to include the whole group in it it is is stylistic because it's not just um you know crime films from the 1950s or 40s you know like there's a big difference between a warner brothers gangster film with james cagney and a noir film you know there's a very stylistic difference there's a big uh thematic difference as well especially you know there's a lot of ideas of corruption and morality that are a big big factor of noir films that the third man makes it's it's really strong juicy text that's something like you know the kind of pulpy entertainment films that uh you know something they did like a a, a white heat i guess for example or uh even like high sierra i think about is another one which don't really qualify as much to noir to me they're gangster films scarface Mm -hmm. as well good example and in some sense i do think this is just a war film or a war thriller and i think it's interesting because i have a totally different label for war films whereas it's war films are very much so about portraying the the war themselves and the actual tactical aspect of them and the uh the uh the the soldier's perspective and what's going on there more so than a um uh like an outsider's perspective being affected by the war that's almost like a totally different thing to me but i'm again I'm, i'm very strict with genre conventions personally I just, I, I guess mine are very fluid that I believe that the best war story could just be like a mother suffering at home, you know? Yeah, and it's certainly, it's a, another facet clue, you know, by all means, 
the Third Man is as much a film about the fallout from World War Two as it is about the morality of its characters and the the dueling going on there and its noir sensibilities. If anything, it's I think it's more about the war, especially with the the moral conflict playing specifically into it with the penicillin racket and you know the bombed out setting and how everyone's trying to get along in this kind of uh, mix-matched world going on now. It moves interestingly between characters because, like you say, it takes over an hour to get to Wells, so we get a lot of a time to establish our other characters here. Yeah, and, and Wells is obviously, I think he's the, the ticket seller here and what everyone wants to see for the film. This was this is something I kind of struggled with. I, it took me, uh, admittedly, uh, you know, kind of curiously, uh, four times seeing the film to really feel it's a an actual masterpiece that it is and because the first time I, I did not like the film and I couldn't exactly tell you why now but one thing I can tell you is that I went in with the wrong mentality is that I knew about the third man everything I'd been told about it was really surrounding Orson Welles and his magnificent entrance into the film here so the whole film I'm sitting here and first of all, I'm confused by this Zither score because I'm expecting a dark and brooding noir film. So I'm like, what the hell is this? And then uh, I'm waiting and waiting and, and Orson Welles is showing up in this movie. It's kind of him withholding something and you could tell he takes some great pleasure in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually... Uh, and So his reveal, he actually had an interesting um, perspective on it as well. You know... He used to say that this was a star-making role, effectively, here, where they talk about you for the whole first act of the film. They talk about this this guy, this Harry Lime. Everyone's interested. Who wants to know who this Harry Lime character is? And so when he finally does enter, it doesn't actually matter. You don't have to do that much performance because it's all been built up for you. You just slide into the, the role seamlessly. I think the build-up does help make his reveal so impactful, too, because... They're sitting in the hotel room and they're talking about Harry and they have the cat that triggers that whole conversation. And then he goes out, there he is. Yeah, they do a really good job of uh, hinting at what the reveal is going to be by setting up the line with the cat beforehand. And then, you know, of course, the fantastic light coming down, you know, and opening up in Orson Welles' very cheeky smile that introduces his character, <laughs> the nice slight push in on his face, and, you know, in yeah. combination with the, the score coming in with the theme, it's all brilliant, brilliant stuff, and beautifully, like, again, just one of the best in character entrances of any film. Yeah, the lighting is fantastic, he looks phenomenal when he appears, so a really impactful scene, and that, uh, that makes the, that sets a way for it to become a chase film, which is good. Yeah, there's um, there's so much with the cinematography. I think we haven't really delved into that enough, but especially the you know the lighting is is such a emblematic aspect of noir and how beautiful and stark it is, and it reflects the theme of it. And also, but you know more than that, the the way the camera moves and the ways things are framed. I don't know if you uh, watched and saw the whole time here, but like this, this might be like the record holder for most uh, Dutch angles in an entire mm. film. <laughs> There's there are so many, so many shots. There's so many, and it works well, like within like the wreckage of the city. But eventually, it's like okay, that's enough Dutch angles. Right. I think uh, if I remember right, I, I, this one's more of a rumor than an actual stated fact. But uh, after the filming was finished, allegedly, apparently, the crew gifted Carol Reed with a, a level. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> because of how so, often used Dutch angles. Yeah, I mean, he. He can't really shoot a scene straight in this. Mm -hmm. Well, and it works really well because it does complement the off-kilter feeling of the city. And again, the noir in general. It's a staple technique of noir films, but just used the, the best here of any. And it does throw it off. It feels like that you're in the wreckage of something and that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I gotta ask, uh, Calvin, do you think you'd agree with most people in saying that the Ferris wheel sequence is probably the highlight of the film? I mean, I think I have. I think I have a few. It's when Orson shows, and then the Ferris wheel is probably the second one. His commentary about crushing the people like ants is just really fun. 
Yeah, uh, it's it's just this really odd thing. So it's a it's a terrifyingly tense moment, I think, while also being very playful and humorous because Wells just oozes charisma in the sequence. But it's it's an awkward pairing because all the while he's saying these awful dehumanizing things about the people that he's affecting with his racket, and then all the people down below. There's the I, that really chilling moment where he just he opens the Ferris wheel door where at the, the top fit and he makes the speech about the ants and then he makes that very veiled threat to Holly as well. Yeah, and, and I like it because it's like this monument of hope sprung up in a city that's all war torn. So you still have like this one remaining thing that's like everything's expanding. We're going to focus on making something as trivial as like a entertainment architecture and then beneath that you have the crumbled old buildings which are all functional so i love the idea that this thing made for play is kind of where he would go and kind of accost holly and see what happens mm-hmm. and and that threat is very i think kind of terrifying especially with the heights i don't know i mean maybe it's because i'm more uh apt to be afraid of falling to my death but um you know that that the very idea is like you know could probably handle you pretty easily and then you see you know joseph cotton like grab onto the ed- you know the the window there of it to make sure you <laughs> yeah there's a few small vertigo moments in the film yeah it's it's a very uh, tense sequence but again it's also very clever and there is actually one moment that wells does get credit for writing wells came up with the the cuckoo clock bit at the end of oh yeah <laughs> so that it's is a great line no, it's a it's a great bit, and uh, maybe you can put a clip in it here because I'm not going to try and bother botching it by by piecing together my memory of it. But um, you know, it's it's a very well worded sequence, and very Wellsian, I would say as well. It, it does mm. seem like something he would come up with, and he does get credit for that. That is, in fact, something Wells came up with, and it's a very good point to end the sequence on this idea that war creates uh, commerce and culture and all the great things of the world and it is it kind of does because if you think about it again think about the whole film noir movement which doesn't exist without world war ii you know yeah i mean like the whole gist of it is they went like 500 years and all they got is like a fucking cuckoo clock right yeah and, and so that's the idea there is that peace and prosperity don't breed culture they don't breed uh art effectively no like the idea uh, like nothing grows in a comfortable space. You you have to have some pushback to be able to create something new. And it, and it's a very twisted way of justifying his abhorrent actions because that's the important thing to kind of remember here. And the the biggest theme I think of the film is the the dueling of morality here because the way Wells plays the character certainly of Harry Lyme at this point in his lifetime he is an evil villainous character. But the way they talk about him the whole time coming the way up, especially between, um, you know, Holly's love of him as a kind of brotherly figure and Anna's love for him as like this one true love. Like you you sense that there is a, a goodness to him that's somewhere lost in there and it, and it makes them hesitant to want to disown him and, and turn him over to the police. And especially, mm-hmm. you know, the theme, I think, is uh, one of my favorite themes that I think gets overlooked in the film is the theme of... Uh, morality presented through the lens of holly as a western pulp novelist yeah i think that gives good context to the americanization of his character that he's expatriated mm-hmm. and that he's just there to do uh, some copy work and then this unfolds around his old friend well not only that but it it tells you what holly's perspective of the world is before he enters into limes vienna yeah. effectively because it's that- in it's interesting to me because a Western would be boldly black and white characters, and I feel like the characters here are like Western characters and not noir characters. Yeah, well, especially Holly's character. Again, it, it, I think they're presented as that, but then they're kind of tumbled around in the noir, and it makes them more conflicted. Like, a, a again, the, the idea here is that Holly represents the kind of Western American ideal of virtuosity and the right way of doing things, but he... Mm-hmm. He's given a tough choice when the morality is dealing with someone who he is uh, given his trust and you know to you know here he's he can't so easily betray Harry even though it's the right thing to do. No, because he can't. Either way, he has to betray either his good friend or Anna or yeah. his country. So he 
he's a Western character thrown into a noir story here, and so mm-hmm. that that makes it make them have a tough decision. And they do make it you know, that theme much more obvious at some points. Like he has a conversation with uh, Trevor Noah, uh, Trevor Howard's character, Major Calloway, that you know references that idea. He's like, you know, you're not a sheriff. This is one of your Western novels here. Right, and you could see that interplay that he's just used to writing about these characters, and uh, that's how they would come out in this film. I do feel like it it unfolds a little bit like a western, but uh, I think I think because it's an, a redemption story, and everyone gets redemption, which is a, a western quality. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still curious as to how you think people get redemption here, because I've got I feel it still ends very kind of cynically, and everyone's kind of worse off than when they started. Um, you know, as um, you do with a noir film. Well, I think that uh, I think that when I think Harry's able to get a little bit of redemption too, because he shows up and then he shows uh, where he's been and what's happened. Um, you don't feel like there's a redemption for uh, Holly either. I guess there is slightly, but I mean, I felt Holly started out virtuous and then stumbled along the way you know and he he dabbled in not doing the right thing and so his ultimate decision to do the right thing in the end is one his character would make at the beginning and so he kind of he made a change for the worse for himself and the ending i think you know the, the very fantabulous ending uh reflects that in his his kind of punishment for it so i feel like he is but i, I do kind of get that sense what you mean of his uh lime's redemption he gets a noble death I yeah, think, which and is... I think so. I think he gets the noble death, and I think that they all end up kind of getting what they need at the end in some way, in but, some but sick way. I'll definitely say that Lime gets off better than he deserves, by all yeah. means. He he deserves a fate much worse than he gets, and he does... He, he foolishly displays his trust in... Um, Holly, which which does show his true character, the character that's been hinted at by all the people who knew him throughout the film, and not the character we saw in the Ferris wheel necessarily. You know, the fact that he is yeah. he's willing to trust uh, Holly and cut him in, and wants to believe he's still his friend. I think that shows the the naivete and and truthfulness. So I, I guess I can see how he is sort of redeemed uh yeah redeemed in a moral sense maybe not in a literal sense because he's very very dead at the end no i think so too and um i guess i don't mean a literal redemption but in the story i feel like his character gets redemption when you say it when you explained how it made more sense to me because again when i look at it just you know based on you know just the viewing experience there i'm like wow everyone really got the shit under the stick. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what you want in a noir ending. You want it to be very disparaging and bleak. And I think he ends up getting, in some way, something better for him because I don't think that her being with him meant that she was faithful in her mind. I think that she was still with the guy in her head and that it wasn't the best result for Holly because he was still the second man, in effect. Yeah, if he even was, if, if right. she even was someone, uh, or or he was someone she cared about, you know, I, it's hard to say necessarily. She clearly shows a devotion to uh, Harry the entire time, especially in that sequence when when Harry gets caught and has to make the run, where she shows she shows her un, undying, unquestionable affection, where she she almost loathes Holly for you know bringing the police into this. Well, I think for me, like, the ending is like a taunt, right? Like, he could go and claim her, or she could come and talk to him, but letting each other go, I think, is a redemption for their own characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we, we end up skipping past it, we do need to talk about that fantabulous chase sequence through the sewers we referenced earlier. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great sequence. Um, what else did we have on it? Well, it's just, it's. A, I think it's important to reemphasize that idea of the cleanliness of it. The, it's just an, a fun environment, I think, as well, and they really capture a lot of the, the visual interest of it. You know, the, the beauty of the water kind of rushing by and the big shadowy environment, and just the, the very interesting different way of it. Uh, I do have some trivia, I guess I could spout off about the, the whole sequence. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, all the people, all the guards, the policemen you see running around are the actual, like, sewer police force in VR. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, I love that. So that's a cool thing to work in there. Um, uh, I can talk a little bit about how Orson Welles is a total diva for, for the set of the film. What did he do? 
well, he was he was kind of impossible to get out of his trailer for a lot of the film. And That's so, why he shows up like an hour and a half in, right? <laughs> they actually had to rewrite the entire story so that he doesn't show up for much no, um, I wondered about that the first time I saw it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I know how inaccessible he is to other directors. Yeah, he, he he's a bit of a troublesome actor sometimes, and this this was one of the, the bigger cases of it. This was The Third Man was kind of just a project he took on to make money to fund some of his European projects. Like, mm-hmm. basically all the money he made from The Third Man went into making Othello at the time. Yeah. Um, but even then, he was like, so he was doing lots of things and working on that, and constantly not being available, and just being generally troublesome and, and meddlesome, and, and some things here not available. But he especially did not want to do stuff in the sewer, which he thought was really gross, and <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy. Time, it's it's the only thing he really has to do in the movie, you know? Right, and and it was very hard to coax him into doing some of it to a point where. Uh, just the general unavailability of Orson. If you don't see his face in the movie, you can assume that it's a double and it's somebody yeah. else, uh, especially in the sewer sequences. But even running around like after his first introduction, like you see yeah. him, the person who walks into the, the, the corner there, you know, that dark alleyway, that's right. not Orson. Orson is only there for the close-ups, effectively. And the person it's, running away... It's so ridiculous, because he doesn't really have to do anything except run and deliver yeah. a few lines. So, like, all throughout the sewer, like, even the, I, I think one of the more interesting bits I can point to especially is the, uh, the the fingers, that famous, like, last moment of hope where you see Harry's fingers, you know, poke through the grates, that really great moment in the sewer as he's about to, you know, die. Those are uh, the director, Carol Reed's fingers that are poking through. They're not Orson's at all. Yeah. And I think that's such a good part. Like, I like to think about context a lot for environment and showing how he's interconnected with what's on top. And, of course, they're, like, looking for him up top initially. Uh, I just really like that dual setting. Well, it's just, I think it's the, the perfect cap on the moment there for his character. Because, effectively, mm. his he, he gets that one last taste of, like, like freedom outside the the dank and disgusting sewer that he has effectively made his life because it's yeah. basically hinted at that this is where he's been hiding out when he's not doing things. And so the sewer, his, his environment, it basically reflects the filth he's allowed his life to sink into. So he, he just one last moment reaches out and feels the fresh air of the real world for a moment before accepting his death and allowing uh, Holly to, you know, finish him off. It's kind of metaphorical for what he's been doing that he's always been grasping for something they can no longer have yeah it's a very poetic death and like we said it's very noble as well he gets out much better and he gets to go out essentially on his own terms he gives the nod of approval he's he's asking holly to to kill him in some way i think that's his redemption that uh that anna gets to know about him that she gets the moment Mm mm-hmm uh, it's interesting as well because you see, uh, and and by the end, I think you feel that Anna has made her reconciliation with with Harry and his death and everything. In the beginning mm. of the film, it starts out with, you know, the funeral of Harry Lyme, and she refuses to to do the ceremonial throwing of the dirt on the coffin. And mm-hmm. the film ends with the actual funeral of Harry Lyme, and she actually does this time. So this shows the kind of character arc of her acceptance of this kind of tumultuous journey of coming to terms with her. Partners. She's a she's really good and often forgotten. Yeah, we we have not really talked about her too much, which is a shame because she's absolutely phenomenal in it. As are all the characters, we spent a lot more time talking about the mechanics of noir and how the film fits in the war setting. But the, of course, you know, it, I I feel like we've done that because it's it's almost repetitive to say the acting in this film is phenomenal. Yeah, and she's really fantastic. Although she doesn't get as much to do in those big sequences that we love, so if we're just focusing on, like, the highlights of the film, of course, you know, she gets to fill in a lot of the background, and she gets a lot of the dramatic work, which is great. I'll, I'll give her a little bit of highlight here. Her name is uh, Alita Volley. She was kind of a pet project of David Ostelsnick, the American producer mm-hmm. here. He That's basically, she was what he brought to the project along with uh, Orson Welles, and he was trying to kind of carve her out into a new uh, Ingrid Bergman, effectively, this kind of European beauty. And the third man was going to be this big vehicle to launch her into, you know, stardom in the United States. And it didn't really do that, but, um, you know, kind of through her own decisions. But she's absolutely phenomenal in the film, and you know, legendary performance here, and um, you know, like she sells her affection and her undying love for 
for Harry so uh, thoroughly throughout the entire film. Absolutely, and I think just the three performers really tie it off, but uh, one of my other favorite things is just all the background performers. I like the diversity of language in the film, and that uh, not a lot of it's ever really translated for us, and we, we just kind of get to exist with them in this weird four-squared space where, you know, it's multicultural, expatriated, and it's uh, has those noir influences. I, I agree. I think uh, the the greatest films always have some really fun and interesting background or supporting characters. Like, you know, even the people who don't matter make an impression. And that's mm. definitely the case here. I love the, the weird friends of Harry Lime that yeah. all he gets live his information from. There's the, yeah. uh, one particular one. I think his name is... Uh, Carl, or is it the Baron? I can't remember his name, really, but know. he's 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 just so weird looking and eccentric, um, and a lot of fun. And then, but I even remember small guys like you, you think about like the very small role of like the balloon salesman who comes up and is like kind of in, you know bothering the police while they're staking out lime, and he just keeps asking the sergeant if he wants a balloon. <laughs> the people that get left behind in a war torn country are very interesting people. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case, and you'll see that in uh, a lot of these. There's there's very few of these kind of films that are specifically about this time and place, made in this time and place, but those are, they're all really great and have very something special to them. I, I told you during the podcast, there was, or not the podcast, the, watching the movie, that there was another film that kind of reminds me of that. Billy Wilder went to Germany and made uh, A Foreign Affair with uh, Marlena Dietrich and Gene Arthur about, mm-hmm. you know, post-war Germany and the kind of, you know, re-establishing of, uh, you know, the government there with uh, the Americans still involved in everything. I mean, this interests me also, just interest in Austria and especially Austrian history and uh, World War II history. I feel like it's such a good artifact that it's like a postcard of a different time. Certainly, again, it's it's a uh, an art, you know, an artistic statement about you know so many things but specifically about the war especially here it's it's a product of it and about it and it's you know uh very interesting because of that that it can do so much uh the third man juggles uh, countless amounts of balls i think (laughs) yeah i think so Uh, i think that's good coverage for it too yeah i think uh i think there's no better way really to end it than with a little bit more zither if you'd play us out absolutely absolutely